up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to reach tall buildings in a single bound. This amazing stranger the planet Krypton. The Man of Steel. Who are you? A friend. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman. 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 This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Hello, welcome to Superman Forever Radio, episode 45. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and this week we're going to be looking at stories featuring the Man of Steel going toe-to-toe with the fastest man alive all the way to the finish line. That's right, it's Superman vs. The Flash. But before we jump into that, we have an email from Mr. Sean Engel, who hosts Just One of the Guys, a Guy Gardner Green Lantern podcast. Sean's email is entitled, Welcome Back, and he writes, or technically, Welcome in my case. Well, thank you, David. You've given me a reason to pick up another podcast to add to my weekly list of awesome podcasts to peruse. I had heard of Superman Forever Radio before, but I didn't listen during its initial run. When I heard the promo on the latest Fantastic cast, I had to give the show a listen, and boy, was I glad I did. Your coverage of the of the Generation storyline was superb. For the longest time, I had heard people talk about how wonderful this series was and how it was one of the best things John Byrne had done in recent years. Your coverage of the book showcased the story in such a manner that it didn't matter what you were revealing about what occurred in the books. The tragedy of what happened to both Bruce and Clark was handled really well, and this is a series that is going to my must-find list. And yes, Sean, you can actually usually find that pretty easily. Um, I might point you to mycomicshop.com if you want a really good deal. And Sean continues, As to the question you posed about whether Superman was justified in killing Lex, 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 awesome, about killing Lex slash the ultra-humanite, I would say yes, he would have been fully justified, not only because of the death of his family and loved ones brought on by Lex, but also because of his other myriad of crimes. But that being said, I am certain that he would not kill Lex. If there is anything about Superman that I feel defines his character, is his compassion and respect for all life. And even with the death of many on the hands of Lex, Superman would not allow himself to murder. However, I wouldn't see Superman stopping a court that found Lex guilty of these crimes from putting him to death. But my and many courts' version of justice might differ from other people's versions, so take it for what you will. Anyhow, I'm glad you're back, doing something you love, and I can't wait to listen to the next episode. Chat with you later, Sean Engel. So thank you, Sean. You're making you're actually making me blush. And yes, um, Generations really does represent some solid, solid John Byrne work in the genre, and I wish he would come back to something of that caliber. And it's always sticky to talk about Superman and whether he should or shouldn't kill. Uh, but in the context of that story, I kind of agree with you. I do feel Lex got... Honestly, I think I think Lex actually got less than what he deserved for all of the malicious acts we saw there. But 
the character of Superman is supposed to be beyond that, beyond what we ordinary mortals are capable of in terms of uh, revenge, things of that nature. So leaving it ambiguous was a really wise choice on, bon- on Burns' part. And uh, just a note, folks, Mr. Engel is a superb podcast host. His show, Just One of the Guys, can be found weekly at justoneofthegues.lipson.com. And he was actually a recent guest on Green Lantern's Light just a few episodes back, along with myself, Michael Bradley, and Jeffrey Taylor, which you can find at greenlanternslight.com. So now that we've got all those plugs out of the way, I'm going to take a, a moment here to set up this episode. Because to set this episode up correctly, we kind of have to set up who The Flash is. And The Flash made his debut in Flash Comics number 1 from 1940, which is an issue that would be on stands on or about November 10th, 1939. So that's roughly 18 months after Superman made his own debut in 1938's Action Comics number 1. It would be roughly 7 months after Detective Comics number 27 went on, on the stands, uh, debuting Batman, of course. And now initially, the character was Jay Garrick, who gained the power of speed after breathing in hard water vapors and decided to use these powers to fight crime. And the character was a bit of a, of, of a sensation, um, even becoming part of the Justice Society of America. But when Frederick Wortham, in his book Seduction of the Innocent, which accused the comic industry of promoting juvenile delinquency, bringing about an age of comics, drop, uh, brought about an age of comics where heroes were dropping left and right. And while some characters did survive the period, most fell to the acts of cancellation or obscurity. But there came a renaissance. DC began reviving their characters, albeit reimagined for the sophisticated 1950s. And we entered into the Silver Age with Showcase No. 4, which was cover dated September-October 1956, which would have approximately been on sale on July 19th of 56. For a cover price of ten cents, you got thirty-two pages edited edited by Mr. Julius Schwartz, and a cover penciled by the great Carmen Infantino, and inked by Joe Kubert. This was the first appearance of the new Flash, Barry Allen, in a story entitled "Mystery of the Human Thunderbolt." This was a story written by Robert Kaniger, with art by Carmen Infantino, as I mentioned a moment, inked by the legendary Joe Kubert. This is a story you can find reprinted a lot of places. Um, Look at Secret Origins number one. Look at the softcover Secret Origins of the DC Superheroes. Greatest Flash Stories Ever Told. DC Silver Age Classics Showcase, where they reprinted those with the borders. and um, Essential Showcase 1956 to 1959. Flash Archives, volume one. And then Millennium Showcase Edition, showcase number four. And of course, the Flash Chronicles, volume one. Let's take a look at the first story featuring Mr. Barry Allen, and this story begins at a radar station on the East Coast where two soldiers are astonished to pick something up on the radar that is moving faster than anything known. It's so fast that it's breaking the sound barrier, which in the 1950s hadn't really been established that much. We we didn't have Chuck Yeager up there yet. Uh, But this instigates a flashback to a short while ago as a storm brews over Central City, shooting lightning bolts all directions. In a police laboratory, Barry Allen is reading his copy of Flash Comics featuring a Scarlet Speedster named Jay Garrick. And Barry puts the comic down and gets back to work, looking upon his large array of chemicals when a lightning bolt streaks into the window, striking Barry and spilling a vast mixture of chemicals all over him. Dazed, Barry finds that he is not hurt and leaves for home. 
and seeing a lone cab, Barry rushes to catch it, and since they will be a few and far between as far as cabs at that late an hour, he kind of panics, and as he rushes, he finds that he can move at great speed, outpacing the cab. When Barry finally stops running, he finds himself at a greasy spoon and decides to take a load off, but even here, he finds no peace. A waitress slips, sending a tray of food into the air, all of which Barry is able to catch and place right back onto the plates in midair. He is that fast. The waitress is stunned, as is Barry, and he decides to get a good night's sleep, waking the next day, feeling that it was all a dream, all in his head, and he goes about his normal routine. But, after work, Barry is late for a date with his best gal, Iris West, and as the two meet up, he sees the impossible, a speeding bullet heading right for Iris. With his lightning-fast reflexes, he manages to help her dodge out of the way as the bullet embeds itself into a wall. A nearby police officer informs them that the bullet was a stray, fired by the Turtle Man, which was an escaping criminal. That's right, I said Turtle Man, not Turtle Boy, we're not talking Jimmy Olsen here. But knowing that he now possesses great speed, and inspired by his favorite comic book, Barry designs a scarlet bodysuit with a hooded mask, and adopts the identity of The Flash. Making an impressive display of his powers, including the ability to move so fast he can run up walls, Barry then comes upon a bank robbery, which he rushes into, and right into the vault, but he finds that the Turtle Man has aborted the robbery. Or, so it would seem. Using quick thinking, Barry realizes that the criminal is performing the crime in two stages, and the Flash rushes after his foe, spotting a shadow on the wall of an alley. Too late to stop, Barry realizes that the shadow is a painted silhouette and rams right into the brick as the Turtle Man watches from a nearby manhole. Realizing the mistake, Barry chases the Turtle Man. Sorry. Realizing the mistake, Barry chases the Turtle Man through the sewers, because I'm still back on the manhole. I just thought a TMNT reference, so I'm going to leave it out. Sorry. But he chases Turtle Man into the sewers to a body of water where Turtle Man conveniently finds a speedboat. Oh, pardon me. Barry finds a speedboat, which sinks when the Flash tries to chase the Turtle Man who's in a rowboat. Undeterred, Barry decides to move fast enough to use his forward momentum to keep him from sinking into the water and catches up with the slowest criminal on Earth. Flash is able to spin the boat around so fast it creates a vortex and brings the Turtle Man into police custody. The next day, as the papers proclaim the Flash's heroism, Iris wistfully thinks how wonderful it would be to meet a man like that, but that's only an idle dream. Barry tells Iris dreams come true, and the story ends beginning... Officially beginning the Silver Age of Comics. So, before we jump into kind of our, our races, I want to give some thoughts on this origin real quick. Um, starting with page one, we get this great splash of the Flash running out of the actual pages from the book. It's a little out of order, but there are those are actual panels from the book, which I thought was kind of genius for the time frame. Uh, page two, we never really come back to the servicemen that saw the Flash on their radar in this story. Uh, but what an unconventional opening to the story, and it's really innovative for the time, which is kind of why this part of why this caught so well, so much and began the Silver Age, it began the Renaissance that included bringing back Green Lantern, so on and so forth. The storm on panel five looks vibrant and ominous at the same time, and of course, the paradox. Barry is reading comic stories about the original Golden Age Flash while enjoying his lunch. It really works here as the superhero genre had nearly been eradicated by seduction of the innocent. And this was a clear indicator to those who may be in the age rage to remember the original. 
it saves on continuity and acknowledges the previous incarnation at the same time. It's kind of a win-win. And then page three, the origin tale. Remember that lightning bolt. Because it does strike twice, but not without reason. So keep a mental note for way later in the episode. And it is funny that the incident doesn't phase Barry all that much. He's dazed, but he just got struck with lightning. Um, I'm sorry if I got struck by lightning. I might want to at least take a breather. I don't know. Uh, but it is really cool to note that it didn't damage the cabinet. It only spilled specific chemicals on Barry. It's almost like the lightning had a mind of its own. Wink! Um, jumping to, uh, we're back on page five, the diner scene with Barry catching the food on the tray. Yep, that was totally ripped off in 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, but done fantastically here initially. Um, it, 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 it just really grabs your attention. Uh, page six, I love panel three, in which a stun Barry watches the bullet. The expressiveness of Infantino's art is so sharp, and it really gives some flesh and blood to the story. Uh, page 7, the premiere of the costume, super compressed into the ring, and it's even explained that the chemical treatment is the reasoning and compared to rubber rafts tossed out by Navy planes. Which is cool, but yes, I love that his costume pops out of a ring. Um, but it's kind of like toothpaste, I'm, I think. I mean, that's what I think is when we shoot it out, that's fine. It's toothpaste. But once it's out of the tube, how do you get it back in? It doesn't say here, but um, these are the things I think about. Page 9, either the Turtle Man is truly brilliant, doing his robbery in two stages, or he's just completely inept, and I lean towards the latter. Because if he's the slowest criminal on Earth, as displayed by his slow-speaking voice, then how did he get a silhouette painted on an alleyway so fast? I mean, even, even in the context of the story, I know hours would have passed, but that includes time to load up the loot. And on page 10, why does he take the rowboat and sabotage the speedboat? Turtle Man's kind of an idiot. Uh, page 11, a milestone. Flash runs on water for the first time, uh, which was set up a few pages earlier with this convenient test of his powers, which is something that we're going to see play out in uh, some of the issues we're going to look at this episode. And finally, page 10, Iris openly dreams about meeting a man like the Flash, with Barry standing right there. Iris, what an absolute witch. Barry is a stable, gainfully employed scientist, while the Flash is a masked vigilante, potential freak of science. Barry's the one who's going to provide the white picket fence in the stable, married life, the kids and the dog, and now you and I know they're the same person. So I know I'm speaking from the character's point of view as far as what has been revealed so far in the story. But overall, the story was, it was an exciting and fresh take on the genre. Um, I'd never read the first appearance, and the tropes of the Silver Age are really, really evident. And The Flash has one of the best costumes in comics, in my opinion. So, we in the first issue, we got an origin, a romantic interest, an adventure, all in the course of 12 pages. Um, two legendary artists, Carmen Infantino, Joe Kubert. So we knew the art was destined to be great, and really has a lot of character and vibrancy here on the, on the pages. And it's ex accelerated by the touch-ups on the Archive Edition, by the way. And I would give this solid this debut a solid B+. It's hampered only by its lame villain. And as I mentioned, this is kind of pretty officially accepted as the beginning of the Silver Age of Comics, along with Batman getting the yellow oval behind his bat symbol, which I kind of dismiss because that was done simply for copyright and profit reasons. 
Uh, the Flash's rebirth led DC to go back to their other characters and revive them, uh, Green Lantern I mentioned, and this coalesced into the creation of the Justice League of America, which the Flash became a very big part of, and that is where the Flash met our hero, Superman. Which brings us to the, the main event this episode, the races. Now the first two races we're going to be covering were collected in the treasury-sized DC Limited Collector's Edition C48 from June 1976, which means, that's right, for two episodes in a row, I've been covering Treasury Editions. Um, luckily, I do have an archive edition of some of, you know, the first appearance, but just an odd note that those Treasury Editions are hard to heft around. With a normal-sized comic, you can throw them in the, in the book bag and, you know, crack them out on lunch. The Treasury Editions are just cumbersome and awkward. So probably won't be covering all that many of those from here on in. Uh, but these two stories were originally presented in two issues across two series. The first is Superman, Volume 1, Issue 199 from August 1967, where the race happened in a story entitled Superman's Race with the Flash. That doesn't bury the lead now, does it? Uh, it was written by Jim Shooter, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by George Klein, and when the issue opens, both Central City and Metropolis are abuzz with the upcoming race between Superman and the Flash. In a flashback, we learned that the United Nations requested that the two heroes go head-to-head -head in order to raise funds for underdeveloped countries. And the two will circle the Earth three times across a predetermined path chosen for their obstacles. But two gambling syndicates decide to fix the race for their heroes to line their own pockets. Unaware of this, the race begins with their fellow Justice Leaguers choosing the racer to support. And... They go. They cross the Atlantic with Superman swimming and the Flash moving fast enough to not fall into the water. See how I told you that would come back? They make it across the desert, the pyramids, and momentarily stop to help a merchant whose cart is tipping over. But the race goes through Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, pretty much everywhere, and the story breaks. And the second half continues the race, thrown off momentarily when a chunk of kryptonite pops out of a volcano, weakening Superman who is helped by the Flash. Superman returns the favor in the guise of Clark Kent when the Flash falls on some ice in Canada. And then the opposing gambling syndicates start their shenanigans, putting transparent bulletproof glass in the, in the Flash's path and kryptonite dust in Superman's, taking the racers out of the equation momentarily. And Superman and the Flash are replaced by imposters with jet boots. But not for long, because they break out of their bindings, overtake the imposters, and finish the race in a tie. But who is faster? We're going to look at that rematch in just a moment, but first, my notes. Starting with the cover, um, this has a great composition, putting the racers in the center of the page, but putting Superman subtly more prominent in the frame. But it is odd, the heroes rooting for their racers are actually switched on the cover from their alignment in the comic itself. Um, I could have done without page one. It's superfluous. Um, it's, it's, it's showing us the gambling syndicate before we know there is even a race. Uh, but I think the second page really carries the excitement of the issue and the excitement of what a race between these two heroes would carry and dropping in on what would, on that would bring the, the readers right in, right aboard, kind of put us right where we need to be. Um, interesting note, the date on the billboard in page two shows June 10th, which I assume was to coincide with the issue coming out, but was off by 10 days. And I do have a question on this huge map on page 5. Where do people get these things made? Uh, but that does bring up a more serious note on page 9, where we see Superman and the Flash rushing over the pyramids, 
This is epic, and I mean that, truly. It has the feeling of a tall tale, like Paul Bunyan and Babe the Ox just over the top, and nearly mythical, which was one of my draws to doing this episode. And we get a page that likely would cause controversy if it appeared in today's DC Comics because the Middle Eastern and Islamic characters tend to make editors skittish or else we would not have gotten the lost crypto story towards the end of the Grounded story arc. Um, but moving on to the Aloha sign on page 14, it's a good reminder that the whole world is watching. And I like that they, they are united with something bigger than them, which is another bit of inspiration that the heroes can spread. Uh, but on the same page, how does kryptonite get into a volcano when the volcano was formed a long, long time ago? But Krypton's destruction was around 30 to 35 years ago. And yet this chunk has somehow made its way into the crust of the Earth, only to be popped out at a very convenient time. Uh, it's a Silver Age, but it's still kind of hard to swallow. Uh, but I do like Superman and Flash spotting each other as they go. And trying to hide it. Uh, really just stand-up guys and shows what fair sports they are. Neither is really in this to prove anything other than to raise money for the United Nations. Um, and that, that kind of continues into the next story, which I don't want to comment too much on here. But um, I have a strong, strong affinity for the Aborigine scene from page 16. When the Flash wonders who he is rooting for. Because even as the little guy is minding his own business under a night sky filled with stars, you know, he's probably not even aware of the race. He's on his own thing. But uh, page 17, I felt that this page was a bit off. Because this is where Clark Kent appears and tends to Barry to make sure that the Flash doesn't think Superman is assisting. But I thought Barry knew Clark and Superman were one and the same at this point. I'm going to put that note on hold because I'm not fully willing to dive in and do the research to find out when the ID was revealed. Uh, but now the villains finally surface on page 20, which plays really well since neither faction knows the other is in on the equation. The whole issue had a bit of a sitcom setup with Superman and Flash kind of assisting one another, hiding it, and the gambling syndicates working against each other without being aware of each other. Um... One thing I don't think fits into that vein is the convenience of a yellow haze blocking the Justice League's view through Green Lantern's ring. I gotta, I gotta call BS on that one. Sorry, I just... The yellow thing is kind of like kryptonite. Oh, oh, we got to have an obstacle. It's yellow. There you go. That's that works. Um, and I, I just... It's something very prevalent in Silver Age. Um, we, I mean, comics have evolved. And while I do enjoy the Silver Age quite a bit... It's little things like that that kind of draw it back a bit. But the major question that fans were asking, arguing, wondering about, it isn't answered. We get a tie. So the world still doesn't know who the fastest man alive really is. Is it Superman or the Flash? Well, there is a rematch that gets teased in this very issue, so let's jump directly to it. Let's take a look at the next race that will unfold in the pages of the Flash's book, from The Flash, Volume 1, 175, from December 1967, The Race to the End of the Universe. Written by E. Nelson Bridwell, penciled by Aras Andrew, inked by Mike Esposito. And Superman and The Flash keep getting anonymous tips for crimes occurring, and each keeps showing the other one up. But, a call to meet with the Justice League reveals the aliens Rock and Sorbin, gamblers from the planet Ventura, who wield great power, and overtake the League. 
and tell the Man of Steel and the Scarlet Speedster they must race, and the loser will see his city destroyed. Unlike the last race, this one will take place off of the planet Earth, so the Flash is bathed in a protective aura, and the two racers begin. But the race is filled with peril, such as the Flash running into a giant space plant that steals his oxygen, and Superman nearly flying into a galaxy revolving around a red sun. Back on Earth, Martian Manhunter makes a bold move. Disguised as Superman, he confronts the aliens, only to be exposed to gold kryptonite and robbed of his superpowers. Meanwhile, Flash is saved by Superman from a sticky meteor, and Superman narrowly avoids falling into a sun when weakened by kryptonite. But when the Flash stops to rest, he gets a message from an unexpected and off-panel source as Superman gets caught within a vortex into another dimension. But Superman and Flash work together, armed with a knowledge that is revealed shortly after they cross the finish line. Rock and Sorbin aren't who they say they are. They are actually reverse Flash and Abracadabra, and the race was a trap to get the heroes to fall into the obstacles in space. Superman realized the ruse when he passed by Ventura, when avoiding the Red Sun Galaxy, and Aquaman passed the, and saw Rock and Sorbin standing there on the planet. And Aquaman passed the message to a space fish... Let me try that again and try to keep a straight face. And Aquaman passed the message to a space fish who was able to <laughs> imitate human voice. But in the end, the real question was, who won the race? And this one was left too close to call and left up to the readers, technically being another tie. <sighs> okay, let's jump into the notes for this second round. Um, we get a definite classic Flash opening sequence on page two. Um, Definitely had the right Silver Age superhero vibe. Very Dick Tracy in itself. It moves really quickly. It sets us up perfectly for the brisk pace of this story. And when Superman does appear on page three, it's an awesome moment where he's getting struck by lightning. And it's just an absolutely marvelous shot. I think opening with this great team-up was a fantastic idea, including touches like the plip sound effect on page four as the Flash catches bullets fired at the bulletproof Man of Steel. Wait, bulletproof Man of Steel? The Flash may have been showing off just a little bit. Um, but page six, panel three, we get a shot of Superman and Flash that would make a great shot to Photoshop and make a Facebook profile picture. And on the same page, old school Justice League. Yes, this is one of the highlights of doing an older comic. You get to steep yourself, and I, I guess you, the audience, into some classic paradigms. You know, paradigms like generic aliens showing up. Like the ones we see on page 7, who we know are frauds. Because now that we know the story, now that it's revealed itself, there's a lot of questions that that raises. Because here's the deal. Now that you and I know that they're Abracadabra and Reverse Flash, we also know that Abracadabra and Reverse Flash just defeated the Justice League. So wait. Wait. Instead of just throwing some kryptonite at Superman, because they pop out of volcanoes and whatnot, and using these advanced powers to defeat the Flash... Let's have a race? If you're able to subdue the Justice League, keep going. Don't concoct an overly elaborate plan giving the heroes ample chance to escape. Just take out the League. Get it done. Now I guess for you and I it wouldn't make for such a great or very long story, so I guess I can't complain over the years of Justice League stories that followed and the non-defeat of the Justice League. Uh, and and I'm and I really do enjoy this story because this race is in a bigger arena. 
It goes beyond the Earth to the galaxy. It's the big-budget sequel to the race we just saw. Which is really good for storytelling, that it wasn't just a repeat of the former race. And the stakes are higher, because now the heroes' respective cities are at stake. That's that mental note I mentioned earlier. And this is best displayed on a pair of panels from page 10, with a close-up of each hero's face, and in the background is their supporting cast for Superman, Lois, Jimmy, Perry, and Lana, um, Iris and her father and friends Dexter, Miles, and Al Desmond for The Flash. Um, and speaking of respective heroes, I really, really like Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito's Flash. He looks sharp, but his Esposito and, and Andrew's Superman comes across a bit cartoony in parts. His, his proportions keep getting thrown off. And a bit of a fun note on page 12. In reprint, within the Treasury edition, when Flash comes across the rather genius space plant that disguises itself as a spaceship, we are reminded that the original story took place before the first lunar exposition. Now, do you think... I mean, the capsule looks... Okay, I'm going to say this. I think the original story inspired somebody to make that lunar capsule. I could be massively wrong, but let's pretend I'm not and live in the world where a Flash comic inspired the lunar exposition. Isn't that a much better world to live in? Hmm? Um, speaking of space, uh, Green Lantern really just misses the ball in this issue. <laughs> On page 13, he wonders why the aliens want the Flash drowned. If they're or downed, I'm sorry. If they're betting on the on the race, because being compulsive gamblers and all, but he keeps this supposition to himself. So apparently, once we know that this is Reverse Flash and Abracadabra, they become easier to defeat, which is a bit of a Silver Age vibe, another trope. So now that I know who you are, I can concoct 27 different ways to defeat you. So, stay with me. Theoretically, if Green Lantern had just turned to Aquaman, who's encased in ice, by the way, and said, Hey, Art, I don't think these guys are who they say they are. Boom. Issue over. Message sent to Superman and Flash. Bad guys go to jail to escape another day. And another Silver Age trope is the wide availability of random forms of kryptonite. To paraphrase Wayne's World 2, they used to give out kryptonite with free samples of Tide. And that sets up that John loses his Superman powers and once again gets trapped in a flame cage gambit. But I'm confused. Martian Manhunter overcomes his weakness to fire by shape-shifting into Superman and taking on all of Superman's powers. Doesn't that mean that John could take on, say, Firestorm's powers and simply sidestep his weakness? Why doesn't he use this trick? I mean, even permanently removing his Superman powers by way of gold kryptonite, which really shouldn't work? There are other heroes who John can mimic. Martian Manhunter would be unstoppable. He would be almost like a Mazo, which is probably why his powers didn't work that way for too long. Uh, back to Green Lantern being pretty worthless. On page 16, Green Lantern views the Flash getting stuck in the sticky meteor and has a mini pity party. If only I could help. Wine, wine, wine. But Superman saves Barry, and Barry returns that favor on page 17. But despite years of fighting side by side, trusting one another's life in their hands, the camaraderie of being members of the Justice League, the Flash still thinks that Superman is trying to cheat. Superman cheat? 
It's blasphemy, Barry. Heresy. Blasphemy. But, as I stated earlier, there are stakes here. If the Flash loses, Central City goes kablooey. And you know, there's an even bigger, twisted element to this scenario. Say one wins. One city gets destroyed. The hero that won still has to live with the fact that his victory would result in the deaths of millions. What a mind game. This is a twisted story. And luckily, I mean, we learned that those were never really the stakes. And then with page 19, the book comes into an acid trip. With the Flash seeing written messages on walls, talking fish, psychedelic colors, the swinging 60s kids, and all of this leads to another tie. Really? Really. Look, I get that if one or the other was the victor, some fans would be ticked on either side. And and then after the race, the book goes into rapid wrap-up mode, because now we know who the villains are. We can dispatch them easily. And it's kind of like the scene from Roger Rabbit, where he could, he could have gotten out of the cuffs as long as it was funny. And all of the lead-up suddenly dwindles to nothing, with a quick wrap-up, a lot of explaining, and we're left with the unanswered question of who is faster. But, little spoiler here, Barry would eventually win in a subsequent race in World's Finest 198 and 199. I'm not covering those today. Uh, because after the break, I want... I No, let me crack that. I need to cover a pair of ra- races with another Flash in another era. Before that, promos for other podcasts. But when we return, Wally West. Be right back. The internet is really, really great. For Guy Gardner Podcast. I got a fast connection so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneofthegays.libsyn.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Internet is for internet is for internet is for just one of the guys dot libson dot com. Just one of the guys does not officially certify that this podcast is more enjoyable than pornography. Stay on. 
every breed of Mongo live together in peace. Wait, he said Mongo, didn't he? That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of The Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com And we are back to cover, continue, I'm sorry, our episode on Superman Racing the Flash. And it just would not be a proper J. David Weeder Flash episode of any podcast without covering one of my favorite characters in comics, Wally West, the fastest man alive. Now to do this, we're first going to jump back in time shortly after Barry became the Flash and look at the Flash number 110 which was cover dated December slash January 1959, actually went on sale October 20th of 59. Once again, it was 10 cents for 32 pages. Julia Schwartz was still the editor. We still had Carmen Infantino covering the cover. And the inker was actually Joe Gael at this point. And the story we're looking at is actually the second story, entitled Meet Kid Flash. This was reprinted in The Flash Annual Number 1, in Flash Archives Volume 2 hardcover, Flash Annual Replica Edition number one, even more Secret Origins number one, Showcase Presents The Flash Volume One, and Flash Chronicles Volume Two. It was written by John Broom, penciled by Carmen Infantino with inker Joe Gaella. And this debut begins at noon time, as the at the apartment of Barry Allen where Iris has asked to meet, as she is bringing somebody over. Turns out it's her young nephew, Wally West, who is the biggest fan of The Flash, and Iris is hoping Barry can arrange a meeting, not realizing that they are one and the same, of course. Iris leaves young Wally in the care of Barry and returns to her desk at Picture News. Barry confides in Wally that The Flash uses his home lab to conduct scientific work, and he wouldn't be surprised if the Scarlet Speedster was in there. Wally nervously goes to the door as Barry uses his speed to change into The Flash and meet him on the other side, unseen by the lad. The Flash and Wally have their meeting, and Flash decides to show Wally how he got his super speed. While in the lab, another lightning bolt comes in the window. Another lightning bolt. See what I did there? I told you. It made sense back in the original Barry Allen that I was talking about. But once again, it strikes chemicals that fall on Wally, mimicking the accident that gave Barry his powers in Showcase Presents number 4 that we looked at just earlier in the episode. Once again, Wally is also unharmed, but sure enough, he has gained speed powers just like the Flash. So Barry bestows a smaller Flash costume on Wally and christens him Kid Flash before he leaves to report to work at the crime lab as Barry Allen. Idly hanging out alone in the apartment, Kid Flash hears about escaped animals from the zoo and rushes to help as as he promised the Flash to always use his powers for the good of mankind. En route, Kid Flash helps a blind man before rounding the animals up at lightning speed and the Flash sees the boy in action, watching him from a distance, relieved to know that he will never be alone in his fight for justice. Iris is curious because Wally claims to know who Kid Flash is later, but will not tell her and Barry because that is a secret between himself and his friend, the Flash. 
So taking a look at the issue itself, starting with page one, the title page featuring the Flash watching in astonishment as Kid Flash whirls a full-grown bear above his head. Why wasn't this the cover? I know the writers at the time had no idea that Wally would one day become the heir to the Flash mantle, but still, this is a relevant story all the way around. I know Weather Wizard also makes his debut in the first story of the issue, but villains were a dime a dozen. And even though he's a relevant member of the Flash's rogues gallery, you would think the addition of another speedster would at least get a tease on the cover, if nothing else. Um, page 2, Iris called Barry out of work to introduce him to her nephew in order to get the boy a meeting with the Flash. Then she heads back to her own job. Man, Barry is whipped. No way around it. Iris, uh, Iris calls the shots. I mean, can you sacrifice your work time to do a favor for his, this nephew that you've never met? I really don't like Iris at all. <laughs> uh, let's not lose this momentum here. Page three, Barry rushes by Wally, meeting him on the other side of the door as the Flash. I can buy <clears throat> that he's moving so fast that Wally can't see him, but to move that fast would mean that many things would be flung through the air, or at least a huge gust of wind, if nothing else. So I kind of call foul on that. Jumping to page five, we learn that Barry has been the Flash for two years. Nothing greatly relevant, but it does set up a time frame. That means, across his storied career, Wally and Kid Flash are around for all but two years of the Flash's history, which puts Wally's tenure as a speedster well past Barry's mark. And once again, a lightning bolt strikes chemicals. Why doesn't Barry develop post-traumatic stress syndrome every time he's around chemicals? Because that would make for a funny superhero, one who's traumatized by their own origin. Actually, now that I think about that, it's actually quite dark. I'm going to strike that. On page 7, Wally gets speed powers, and instead of being shocked, Barry gives the kid his own flash ring and costume. That's a great idea. Let's throw the kid into a life of danger-fighting villains. Great. Page 8, continuing the same thought, why doesn't Barry just level with Wally? Admit that he's the Flash. I mean, he did put the boy into the very situation that created Kid Flash. And how egotistical is the Flash, making Wally wear a smaller spare costume? The kid is simply hanging around the apartment, not out in public. And at least the story didn't end with Barry trying to find a place to hide the body. And add to that the fact that he's created this super speedy kid, given him a hero name and costume all within a matter of hours, and then he just leaves. He just leaves Wally to stew in the trauma of getting hit with lightning. We don't see a visit to the hospital. We don't see a call to Iris that this happened. Everybody leaves Wally all alone. Great parenting, great role models. Uh, on page 10, Kid Flash takes a moment to help the blind man who's about to cross the street getting hit by a car. Um, well played. That's all I have to say. That was a nice moment. That even with the whole zoo being the, the focus, he took a time out of his day to do that. Uh, page 11, Barry hangs back watching. I rather like this. Because uh, he's not crowding Wally. He's letting the new hero find his groove, but staying on hand just in case anything comes up. Now, for all my joking, this is actually some good mentoring. Um, Barry still does an admirable job of watching out for his new partner, and maybe it's this mentality that does allow Wally to develop into the competent and capable Flash that we're going to see a little bit later down the road here. And finally, page 12. Iris says, maybe you'll be happy now that you have finally met the Flash. What a crotchety woman. She might as well be saying, now that you met the Flash, you ought to shut up. Um, but kind of general thoughts on this story. Infantino's art looks a bit more animated without Joe Kubert's inks. 
um, there was a, a balance that was lost, kind of a three-dimensional quality. I don't, I don't want you to register that as a complaint because it's, it's, it's admirable, especially when you look at the details like Iris mono, Iris's monogrammed handbag, the speed lines. However, he hasn't quite got the proportions down to tell Kid Flash from the full-grown Flash. So as long as they're in the same costume, they look strikingly similar. And this debut felt really rushed. While he appeared, there was an accident. A couple of pages later, he's in costume. And while I liked the brevity in Barry's origin, I don't like it here because it feels like a new entry into an established cast should be paced. Uh, perhaps an earlier appearance of Wally and then the Kid Flash event could have fleshed this out. But we do see a lot of the once and future Flash in the boy, and I can see where the makings of a good hero and not just a sidekick are really already in the mix. Uh, because of the lack of an actual enemy on top of the brevity and convenience of the origin, I would actually give the story a C for being average, but not quite the debut a sidekick de deserves. I mean, after all, Robin and Speedy both appeared on the cover of their respective debut books. Hmm? Uh, but enough sour grapes. Wally, you know, as I mentioned, took over the mantle of the Flash, left vacant when Barry died in Crisis on Infinite Earths. So leaping back ahead through time to the post-crisis period, we are going to first look at The Adventures of Superman number 453, cover dated February 1990, with an on-sale date of December 26th, 1989. At this time, editor was Mike Carlin. Uh, the book was penciled and written by Dan Jurgens, inked by Art Thabert, lettered by Albert Tobias de Guzman, colored by Glenn Whitmore. And this issue was entitled Speed Kills, which was actually reprinted in the Superman vs. Flash trade paperback. Now, Wally West and his friend Mason are grabbing some grub at the Big Belly Burger when a nearby radio blares Michael Bailey's famed expositional news network and tells us of some happenings at Mount Rushmore. Wally scarfs down his food and runs to Mount Rushmore and finds Mr. Mixus Pitalik, who has added his face to the monument. Mixie and Flash kind of talk for a moment about the Flash's speed powers when the inevitable topic of whether the Flash is faster than Superman comes up. Mixus Pitalik gets an idea and teleports Flash away. Meanwhile, in Metropolis, Clark Kent, who is the editor of Newstime magazine, is chiding his writers when Mr. Mixus Pitlick appears on computer screens everywhere to announce a race between Superman and the Flash in one hour at Metropolis Stadium. And, of course, this is news to Clark Kent, who we know is Superman, and he has no real choice but to fly to Metropolis Stadium to investigate. Once at the stadium, Mixus Pitlick explains that if Superman races the Flash and wins, Mixie will go back to the fifth dimension. Superman sees the excellence of this, but Wally isn't out to prove anything, and decides not to race. But the Man of Steel guilt trips him by calling him Kid Flash, so Wally reconsiders and decides to race. After all, and Mixus Pitalik makes a green carpet construct to form the race path around the planet, and the race is on again. The racers find that Mixie is making the course interesting by making the course try to shake them off, making the course go underwater, which is no problem for Superman, but Flash has to skip across the ocean like a stone because he isn't quite as fast as Barry was. Not yet. The course also includes living mountains in Mixus Pitalik's image and a painted tunnel, which Superman slams right into. Flash does take a moment to dig Superman out of the rubble afterward, and the two get back to running, wearing down as they face a final obstacle, a water construct version of Mixus Pitalik, which doesn't prove to be too much of an obstacle after all. 
and the racers rush through Metropolis to the finish line, neck and neck, until a, a victor narrowly takes a last second leader. And that winner is The Flash. This really backfires on Mixus Pidlick, who learned the art of lying from Luthor on his last visit and fixed the race so he would only leave if The Flash won. Defeated, Mixus Pidlick returns to the fifth dimension, and Wally accuses Superman of knowing Mixus Pidlick lied and throwing the race. But Superman says that Wally won fair and square, leaving one problem. Mixus Pidlick left without giving F The Flash his prize. And so ends the first post-crisis race between Superman and The Flash, and so begins my notes. Starting with the cover, I first saw this issue on the Spinner Rack shortly after it came out and snatched it up. Um, while I bought comics, I didn't have regular access to the comic shop, so I didn't follow any series as regularly as I could. And the cover is a direct homage to the, co to the cover of Superman 199. Uh, just kind of switching out some of the characters, um, cheering on the racers, and adding Mrs. Mr. Mixus Pidelik, which is Mr. Mixus Pidelik is always already awesome. Having seen the Treasury cover in ads from old comics, but never getting to read it as a kid, since they, they were, the Treasury editions were kind of hard to find, I saw this issue, I grabbed it, and as a standalone issue, it worked. It worked really well. Uh, we get a great, concise explanation on why Wally has to eat so much on the first page without bogging the story down with a ton of exposition. And then, by page two and three, which are a spread, Wally is already in costume and running. And the dialogue between The Flash and Mixus Pitalik is excellent. Wally starts off fairly polite, realizes that he's talking to a little floating man who just defaced a national monument, and gets back on the clock. Uh, this is still early in Wally's tenure, uh, when he was still very much in Barry's shadow, which really plays into the story quite quite well in one part, but not well in another. It was very effective, and I'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, but Wally had kind of proven himself in the field of being a sidekick. He was a team member of the Team Titans, yet when he took over the primary hero role, a lot of the big guns in the DCU, having known Wally as Barry's kid sidekick, had a lot of trouble adjusting. Um, which wasn't unfair. Barry was a, a big part of the Justice League for a long time. He had tight relationships with a lot of those characters. And to see somebody in that costume taking that name, it's... I, I guess it would be like losing your best friend. And then almost immediately raiding their closet, wearing their clothes, pretending to be them. Now that's a very, very crude analogy. Uh, but I don't think it's way off. I don't think it's completely way off base. Um, really, Wally kind of earned the role. And if Barry had simply stepped down and retired, there wouldn't have been quite as much pressure to perform as The Flash. But... Barry died in an epic way that went largely undisturbed until 2008 or 2009 with Flash Rebirth. And his death was this hallowed event for such a long time. So Wally was looked at as having a big pair of winged boots to fill, made bigger by the reverence of Barry's death. And to touch on some things in this issue, as mentioned in the synopsis, Clark Kent is the editor at Newstime Magazine, and oddly the role really kind of worked for him. And I'm kind of touching lightly on this since... The Superman books were pretty much, they were very continuity heavy at the time. And also, you know, this is a, this is an era that's covered by From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the Superman homepage, um, hosted by Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, which I will recommend. That plug was free, guys. Um, <clears throat> but it was, it was a very thick continuity time. And in about a year from what we're reading here, it would get progressively more continuity heavy. 
and I'm just trying to recover this as a, as a straight standalone story, but I did want to clarify that wasn't a mistake. So check out From Crisis to Crisis for more details on that. But to get back to the thought process a bit, I'm going to jump ahead in the story to page 7 where Superman uses Wally's slight inferiority complex to prompt him into the race. I have a big issue with this. It's kind of a douchebag move. And I know it's for the greater good, but Superman is talking down to Wally a bit. And that bothers me, bothers me because Superman... I just can't see him doing that. And it kind of it gets contradicted a little bit later in the issue because of of all the heroes in the Justice League, and oh, not even the League of this time, um, let me rephrase, of all the heroes in the top seven, as Grant Morrison would brand it, Superman would have been the one I expected to really mentor Wally and support him and not use his, this against him. Um, and while that gets redeemed towards the end of the issue, this move right here is Bush League. And that is an actual opinion from the time period I had as well. So, I mean, this is the, the 12-year-old me speaking as along with the 35-year-old me. <laughs> uh, but the race itself. Uh, bear in mind, with the post-crisis universe, the races we covered before the break never happen. So this was a bit of a fresh slate to work with, but still take the core of the original story. Adding Mixus Pitalik was probably the best decision made with any of these Flash races. Because it allows the big scale, it allows the ridiculous, and with Mixus Pitalik involved, you buy it. It also gives us the great device of the Green Lantern-style carpet that serves as the racetrack. And we get the excitement level slowly notched up by the crowds handling Wally, or handling, the crowds handing Wally food and water. Now speaking of water, Wally skids across it rather than running across it as the Flash would normally do as we saw just a little bit ago with Turtle Man. Wally's power at this time, um, well, Superman's as well. They were kind of dialed down a bit. So the scene in which Superman runs underwater stealing Aquaman's shtick and Flash skidding across the water was actually a bit of semantic, it could have been a semantic nightmare. And I think it was very gracefully handled. And, wait, poor choice of words because Wally's skidding on his butt, but it, it was it was well handled. <laughs> Um, there wasn't really as much in the way of obstacles this time. Mixus Pitalik was momentarily an ice giant. It ended quickly. Mixus Pitalik was a water giant. It ended quickly. The one obstacle that really stands out for me was the Wily Coyote-style tunnel painted on the wall. That was pure Mixus Pitalik funny. Um, just hilarious. And Superman hits it at full speed, which I imagine had to be a lot like... You know that feeling you get just as you're about to fall asleep and you suddenly think you're falling and come to a start it had to be just like that except it's slamming into a brick wall um so probably nothing like that but there is the scene that i like the superman that i was talking about where it redeems himself because wally digs superman out of the crater and tells him that barry would be happy to see him in the flash gear thank you thank you for that redemption if that scene hadn't been in there i probably would have been Angry with this issue for many decades. Um, but while the scene started as a, while the scene that started the race was an annoyance, the acknowledgement made a huge difference. Because Superman sees good in people. He sees Wally, really a college kid, a college age kid trying to do justice to the lightning bolt insignia on his chest. He sees the effort. He acknowledges it, and he boosts Wally's confidence. And I wonder. If that moment helped Wally put more into the race and win it, 
I would like to think so. Um, and another one of my favorite scenes on page 19, both heroes supporting cast. Mostly Superman's, but their cast cheers the hero on, including Joan Garrick, wife of missing speedster Jay Garrick, and Lois and Lucy Lane. It's very much like the scene in, in issue 199, uh, which is this this very title, oddly, because Superman Volume 1 was retitled to Adventures of Superman Following the Crisis, which reminds us that there are people in the world watching this race. And then we, And then we get to the end. And Mixie leaves of his own accord after metaphorically shooting shooting himself in the foot with his failed attempt at lying. And even then, Wally can't accept that he won. And I do believe Superman, I do believe Wally did win this race. And I went through a lot of different emotions, uh, both at the time of this issue coming out, when it was new, and rereading it now for the show. On one hand, I want Superman to win. He's my favorite character, but... Wally is supposed to be the fastest man alive. So when I finally kind of felt like I needed to decide how I felt about Wally winning, I decided that it fits that he won. Because Superman has a whole array of powers. And Wally has one real power set, and this should be his arena to win. So I rest contented that Wally did achieve his victory, and Superman really did put in the effort in and did not let him win. Uh, but one small deviation in the track or gust of wind could have changed the outcome altogether. And there was a moment of binding, a bonding that really meant a lot to me. I'm sure it helped Wally quite a bit, and it sets up our final comic for the episode, which is The Flash, Volume 2, Issue 209. Cover dated June 2004 with an April 28th on stand date. This was during Jeff John's run as writer. And so he is presenting the story with pencils by Howard Porter, with inks by John Livesay, letter by Rob Lay, colored by James Sinclair. And the cover was actually done by Mr. Michael Turner. This is entitled Fast Friends, which is actually reprinted in Flash, The Secret of Barry Allen Trade Paperback, and Flash Omnibus Volume 3, hardcover. One of the major differences between Barry and Wally is that Wally went public with his secret identity. But when the, wish, when the issue opens with Wally facing the League, the Justice League, the Spectre at this time, Hal Jordan has erased the knowledge of Flash's secret identity out of the minds of his friends and family, save Jay Garrick and Bart Allen, who were able to figure it out. At the same time, Wally is a bit distracted, because his wife, Linda, just up and left abruptly. But when the League wants an explanation as to why they can't remember who he is, he is beamed to the satellite... And they demand to know what exactly is going on, especially since Zatanna senses magic is involved. Batman has figured it out, of course, because that's what Batman does. But nobody else on the League remembers Wally West's secret identity. And that just won't stand. So they bring him to the satellite. They try to question him, but he bolts to find Linda. Superman steps forward and tells the League that he'll pursue Wally and Wally will talk with him. Not in a threatening way. What ensues is a high-speed chase with Wally hitting every location that he can think of for Linda, including her parents' home in New York, in Paris, and Maui, and as they run, Superman tries to get Wally to open up with him, but Wally's focus is on finding his wife. Flash has an epiphany. Linda has always acted as a bit of a beacon for him. The two are tied, and he is convinced that she is back at home at the apartment in, in Keystone City. The Flash races back there to find the apartment empty and stops. 
Realizing that he is only acting like a fool, he takes his mask off to show his face to Superman, who now remembers Wally. And later the two talk as Clark Kent and Wally West, as they clean up some debris and damage in the streets. And Clark invites Wally to Ma and Pa Kent's house for dinner, and then Wally makes amends with the League and his superhero friends, revealing his identity to them once more. And I have to admit, this is my favorite issue of the episode. Despite it not technically being a race. Uh, sorry, semantics, I know, but, I mean, let's be honest, a Michael Turner cover helps this issue quite a bit. Um, even if I'm not a huge fan of how he draws, yes, Hawkman. Uh, just not, sorry. But the opening scene is really tense, and Howard Porter's art nails that. I like the characters chosen for this conversation, because they brought in Elongated Man and Zatanna. And anytime Zatanna shows up, I get the right vibe from the original Satellite era. But the body language in the layout on pages 2 and 3 really sell it. Aquaman and Martian Manhunter have their arms crossed. Jon Stewart stands rigid, almost judging. Wonder Woman has her hands on her hips and Zatanna is looking away. Ray Palmer and Hawkman have a good moment in which Adam tells Flash that, hey, everyone's being pulled away from their lives to just have this discussion, so Wally saying they pulled him from something is moot. My favorite thing about this issue is that Wally thinks that Batman is the smartest member of the League next to Superman. After all, Superman can balance a job, a wife, a family, being a superhero, and Bruce, well, Bruce has money. That's not a slam on Batman. So before you start the angry emails, it's not a slam on Batman. That's not what I'm saying. But it's nice to get that fresh perspective. The, you know, some of the more positive aspects of Superman from this time, because this is when he was married to Lois working at the Daily Planet, that these are acknowledged. That's what I appreciate about that. So moving to page four, we have several more great moments. Martian Manhunter explaining why they are giving Flash a chance to speak rather than use telepathy or magic. John looking at Wally, not reading his mind. John Jones, sorry, I should be more clear. John, because he's standing next to John Stewart. John Jones looking at Wally, not reading his mind, but the simple look in his eyes and telepathically saying, I am sorry. And along the bottom panels, Green Arrow asks, why don't they just use Wonder Woman's magic lasso on Wally and starts for it? Wonder Woman stops him with but a look. And Ollie swears he wasn't going to touch it. <laughs> I, uh, I can't help but laugh at page 5 with Zatanna being a bit indignant, since the League's concern is who is playing with our memories. Because that's, that's a violation. And Zatanna demands to know who the magician who did this was. Mm-hmm. Two words, Z. Dr. Light. Yes, the irony is the one who did the mind-wiping is now... Maybe maybe that's actually a small, subtle character hint. Maybe she's actually paranoid. She's starting to wonder if she did it. <laughs> Not sure. I don't think that at all. I just find the irony pretty ironic. Um, but when Wally runs, Superman doesn't get angry. He doesn't get frustrated. In the final panel, he steps up and he calmly says... I'll catch him. And that echoes through the first part of the chase. Because Superman says he's not there to lecture Wally, but he does want to lend a hand and talk. Wally gets indignant because he points out that the people of Keystone City can take care of themselves, unlike those in Metropolis. They're not looking up to the sky, crying out to be saved. And it does state that Keystone City is in Kansas, and it's actually a twin city with Central City. This, this really excites me because it kind of means that the twin cities of Keystone and Central City are almost like Kansas City. 
which straddles Missouri and Kansas. That's a city I lived in. And an odd side note, because this that's what I do. I go off on tangents. If you Google Kansas City Power and Light Building, make sure you add the word building. Do an image search. Kansas City Power and Light Building. You will see the building that I stared at on the skyline. That looks just like the Daily Planet Sands a globe. Slap a globe on that thing. Ooh. If somebody can Photoshop a globe on that, please send me a pic. I've not been successful. I would be eternally grateful. Um, but I'm off on tangent again. Back on topic. Superman stays hands off um, until page 12 when he finally gently tries to stop Wally with a light blast of heat vision. But the flash is faster than heat vision. Beyond that, Superman goes back to keeping pace with Wally and kind of piecing together bit by bit as far as what is eating at Wally, which is good because Clark Kent is a reporter. He's used to putting these pieces together. And then we get to page 16 when fi Wally finally gets it. Whoops. By choosing to allow the Spectre to remove his identity from the world, he broke an emotional tether between he and his wife, Linda. Uh... Panel 2 with Wally standing there, boots smoking from friction, um, just having all of the emotions sucked out of him by not finding his wife, uh, by being exhausted by running around the world. It just stands out so prominently in my head. Because here is a man that is spent physically and emotionally, and Superman is being somewhat assertive, not aggressive. But he had to make, that had to make a big difference in kind of helping him realize what he's done. Now, if Batman had been pursuing, however, that would work physically. And badgering him, Wally probably would not have come to his senses in the same way. And that rolls into the scene with Clark and Wally cleaning up the debris in Keystone City from a previous fight. Wally mentions that the citizens don't normally allow him to help with the cleanup, because he's also the Flash. And he talks about Barry, who had more of a sense of humor, or Clark talks about Barry... Who had more of a sense of humor than he let on because Barry would apparently perform the Abbott and Costello who's on first routine by running back and forth at super speed but Aquaman never got it because there's no baseball in Atlantis which I love this scene oh this scene um, including Superman talking about his marriage to Lois Lane it speaks volumes because you know when we look at the issue we covered previously it's early in Wally's career as the Flash we saw Superman approaching Wally as the new kid the one who followed Barry, and here, over a decade later, he invites Wally to dinner, and they talk man-to-man. -man. That is the evolution of Wally West as a character. The start as a sidekick who grew up, became looked at as an equal, as a teammate, and here, a friend. Now, putting these issues side-by-side, side, really, it showed a lot about what I love about Wally West as The Flash. Well, I'm in, I know I don't dislike Barry at all. I like Barry quite a bit. With me, I got to watch Wally go through the evolution we're seeing here. I got to see him grow up as I grew up, and I literally grew up with him. And here, Johns hits that nail on the head with both Superman and The Flash. And I dig it, even if I'm not a huge Howard Porter fan. And to kind of bring this into kind of a, a close... I want to urge you to check out Flash Legacies. Flash Legacies is a podcast hosted by my friend David Walker. It's available at flashlegacies.libsyn.com. Dave is a, is a real 
Flash fan and does an excellent podcast chronicling Wally's tenure as a Scarlet Speedster. So I, I definitely want to urge you to kind of continue that journey with Wally and watch this evolution occur. Because he's still early enough in the run that uh, I don't believe the race has even happened yet on the show, at least not as I'm recording this. So I urge you to, to kind of watch that, watch Wally. Um, and if you like Barry, I mean, there's Tom versus the Flash. That was a show done by Tom, Tom Caters. Um, that completed its run, but if all those episodes are still out there. They're very short. But we're not done with The Flash yet. Um, even though we've now been through two races with Barry, two races with, well, a race and a chase with Wally, what we're going to do now is continue the festival of Flash Superman races. Normally I would go to a break here, but since this is still on topic, we're going to jump right into our final stop with the fourth episode of the second season of Superman the Animated Series, Speed Demons, which aired on September 13th, 1997. This episode was written by Rich Fogel, directed by uh, one of those names that's going to be hard to say, Toshihiko Masuda. Um, On top of our normal cast, Tim Daly as Superman, Clark Kent, Dana Delaney as Lois Lane, we also added guest stars Charlie Schlotter as The Flash, Miguel Ferrer as Mark Martin, The Weather Wizard, Lauren Dreyfus as Ben Martin, Carl Lumley as The Mayor, Marion Ross as General Richter, and Neil Ross as Captain. And this episode opens in Metropolis with the fastest man alive race where a crowd has gathered as Superman flies in. Jimmy and Lois are in attendance and Jimmy says that Superman is going to smoke this guy from Central City. Lois says that Jimmy shouldn't be so sure. There is a reason that they call him the Flash. As if on cue, Flash makes his big interest, whisking in and blowing up a lot of wind to flip Superman's cape over his head. The Flash is cocky and a bit of a joker and tells Lois that Superman is the man of steel, feet of lead, and shows off literally running circles around Superman. And then a kindly mayor explains that this is a charitable race. He who circles the globe 100 times first wins. With tracking wristbands attached, the two racers get to the starting line and the race begins. The two racers are streaks running around the city of Metropolis and beyond and in the desert. Across the water, the two heroes run, marveling at a giant whale popping up out of the water. Elsewhere, a man that we saw at the race drives down the road, tearing off a fake beard and making his way to a large house off the beaten path where the snow is falling, despite the heat. What goes on here? The man rushes in to see his brother, Ben, where we learn the little guy is using a tracking armband to produce enough velocity to power a weather-controlling machine. At a government weather tracking station, the man, who now calls himself the Wizard, warns that something is about to happen off the coast of Australia, and with a wave of a wand, there is suddenly a storm endangering a ship on the water with a giant wave. The winds in the water prove too much, and the sailors start to fall into the water as the ship rocks violently back and forth. Meanwhile, Superman spots the ship as he and the Flash race by and tries to tell Flash that they need to help, but Flash doesn't believe him until Superman rushes off to save the sailors. Superman drops in on the ship, which is spilling oil into the ocean. Superman dives underwater, seals the hole with his super strength, containing the spill. Flash, showing off, creates a cyclone with his super speed and cleans up the oil that has been spilled so far. And as soon as the boat is saved, the storm clears. Aboard the ship, Superman and Flash watch the weather wizard's demands. Flash recognizes him from an attempt to blow up the metro tunnel when the Flash failed to capture him. But the racers get back to it, rushing off the ship as the weather wizard decides his next strike 
a winter storm over the racers, slowing them down as they fight against the ice and rain getting frozen. Superman uses the, his heat vision to free himself from the, from the ice and finds that Flash is already free, having vibrated his body through the ice. Superman puts together that the armbands are allowing the weather wizard to pinpoint them and also create the energy needed to power the machine, as we saw earlier. Flash and Superman rush to the weather, wiz the weather tracking station where Weather Wizard says that if he does not receive the money he demands, he will create a hurricane to annihilate Metropolis. Back at the Weather Wizard's hideout, he and his brother Ben argue about the way the machine is being used, and Ben decides he wants out. He made the machine to help people. So Weather Wizard allows Ben to leave without a fight, which can't be good, right? And then he uses the machine, creating another weather anomaly, this time a sudden winter storm right over Ben's head. With ice hard enough to shatter the windshield of Ben's car, and send it, it sends it over the edge of a cliff where Ben falls out, plummeting to his doom until he gets caught by the Flash. Ben says that Weather Wizard is mad and he'll kill them all, and then storm clouds form over Metropolis. The Flash demands to know where to find Weather Wizard, and Ben tells him, so the Scarlet Speedster races off and gets struck by lightning as he approaches the house. Superman and Flash regroup and try to find another way in. With Flash injured, Superman spins around, creating an underground tunnel into the house, and comes face to face with the Weather Wizard, who uses the wand to fill the Man of Steel with electricity. Flash, using the tunnel, rushes into the room and knocks the Weather Wizard down, but in the process, the baton that controls the machine falls, creating a vortex in the house that threatens to consume heroes and villains alike. Superman rushes all three out of the house as the machine overloads. With the danger over, villain captured, the two heroes decide to settle the bet on who the fastest man alive is, and we close as they run off, leaving us with yet another unanswered question of who is faster in the DC Animated Universe. This episode, unlike most, it fit perfectly into what I wanted to cover with Superman Forever Radio, which I don't know if that happens again down the road, but we will see. It really is excellent in what it brings to the table. And along with the Promethean, we're seeing a more concise level of animation. Uh, just look at the speed effects when the Flash rushes into the race scene. Now, we are never shown if the Flash is Barry Allen or Wally West in this episode. But years later in Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, sharing a continuity with this show and, and Batman the Animated Series, the Flash is eventually confirmed to be Wally West. I'm a bit confused as to why the racing path wasn't cleared. Uh, because they're dodging through cars and people, which can create dangerous driving conditions concerning the speeds that they are going. And the Flash we see here is presented as a... It's a pretty dimensional character once the episode is played out. And it's odd because we get that in a roughly 24-minute length episode. Now on the surface, he's flippant, he's mouthy, he's a braggart that seems to take nothing seriously... But when push comes to shove, he steps to the plate, and we see a bit of wounded pride and a begrudging willingness to team up with Superman to do what needs to be done. Now, the Flash here is voiced by Charlie Schlotter, as I mentioned. Now, he played Ferris Bueller on a very short-lived TV series based on the movie. Now, Schlotter went on to be a voice actor with quite a resume. Um, when Justice League began in 2002, Schlotter would be replaced by Michael Rosenbaum, who played Lex Luthor on Smallville. So the animated Flash is tied very closely to Superman on several levels. Uh, Miguel Ferrer voices the Weather Wizard, which is ironic since he pretty much played the same character, albeit called the Weather Man, on an unaired TV pilot for the Justice League of America TV show. 
Um, further, Ferrer is the cousin of former Batman George Clooney and went on to voice Bibbo and Vandal Savage on Young Justice and Martian Manhunter in the direct-to-DVD New Frontier movie. Uh, the episode, getting back on point, really had a lot of humor, such as Flash doing the high-five, you're too slow bit, and Superman throwing it back at him at the end of the episode. We also get some of the tropes of early Flash-Superman races. Uh, Superman telling Flash there's danger, Flash being hesitant to believe him. Really, I mean, just to be honest with you, I had a ton of fun watching the episode. Uh, so much that I think that the, that's the best note I can really offer. It's fun, the animation is great, the villain is credible, and despite some small gripes, like Superman flying alongside the Flash instead of running at one point, and Flash catching Ben as he should, as he should uh, would break his neck, these are all mostly muted. Um, these are things to be expected. And I give this episode 4.5 S Shields out of 5. Once again, uh, just continuing a string of favorites of the season and a great but somewhat unintentional lead-up to the Justice League cartoon. And that was a great but unintentional segue to the end of the episode. Though I do want to note that this episode, ironically, took the longest to write up of any of the episodes so far, and of course, it's about the fastest man alive. Irony can be pretty ironic. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder, telling you to keep on fighting for truth and justice forever. This has been Superman Forever Radio, a NatWorld production. You can find the show on iTunes with backlogs of episodes, where you can also leave a review. The show finds its home at supermanforever.com, and is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. You can friend the show on Facebook at, at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio, and email the show at mail at supermanforever.com, David can be found on Twitter at twitter.com slash superdaveweeder. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, are all properties of Warner Brothers Entertainment and DC Entertainment. All music and sound clips used on the show are copyright their respective owners and no infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Thank you.